G'day, it's Phil Edwards, Vision CEO here, with a quick invitation to become part of this amazing beacon of hope called Vision. Together we can put our love into action to help people of all kinds build or rebuild their lives on the truth of God. Please consider the part you can play during our upcoming Visionathon appeal, remembering that it's your support that makes Vision possible, including this podcast. Connecting faith to life. Vision. The story. We didn't have time for for God or church or Bibles because we were all too busy trying to survive in this uh, powder keg that we lived in. There were violent rages and anger and things being tossed around and, um, yeah, I was just trying to survive. G'day, I'm Jimmy Colfax. Welcome to The Story. Well, it must have been extremely difficult for Kay Hollings growing up with a mentally ill grandmother and going through some terrifying experiences. So it was understandable when years later she was very reluctant when she felt the Lord calling her into mental health chaplaincy. God was going to have to change her heart if he wanted her to be around mentally ill people on a regular basis. And that's exactly what he did. Kay Hollings shares her story with Eric Scatterbo. Kay Hollings, welcome to the program. Thank you. It's lovely to be here. Glad to have you with us. And we're going to find out how God worked in your life in just a little bit. But let's go back and find out what was your childhood like growing up with a mentally ill grandmother? Well, my parents and my brother and myself lived with my grandmother or she lived with us all of her life. Um, she was a very ill lady, but as a child, uh, she was just someone that I found very scary. So one event that has stuck in my mind all these years was when I was seven and my brother was three, my dad had gone to work and my grandmother in the middle of a psychotic episode was trying to kill my mother. Oh my goodness. And so it was all happening out in the backyard and there was blood everywhere and my mother told me to take my brother and go up to the nearest shop because we didn't have a phone and get them to call the police. So in our pyjamas and barefooted, off we went to the shop and uh, the police came and we watched my grandmother being taken away in a straitjacket. Now, fortunately, that doesn't happen today, but um, back then, and as a seven-year-old, that was a very scary event. And the rest of uh, my childhood and my brothers, was spent visiting my grandmother on weekends, every weekend, in um, various psychiatric institutions. This is back in the 1950s where Mm. the hospitals were like prisons with um, very high walls and barred windows, very long stays. People stayed for one or two years before they were allowed to be released, if ever. And... um, the psychiatric care and medications were only just being developed. So they were long stays and it was, um, they were grim places to visit. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Well, I can certainly understand why that would be a very uh, negative experience. Now you have a quote in your book that says in your childhood, I had no self-esteem, no confidence, no purpose, and a fierce dislike of psychiatric wards. Can you kind of unpack what was going through your mind back in your childhood? Yes, um, my grandmother only had one son, my dad, and he was her favourite, so she never really accepted that dad had married, and she, for some reason, was very close to my brother and didn't have room in her life for a granddaughter. So I was totally rejected, and my brother was the favourite. Now, while my parents certainly didn't foster that favouritism, 
living with that all day, every day was what made me insecure and it made me try to be good at everything. Um, I was an overachiever um, at high school. I remember being on every sports team in the school, doing well in exams, but it didn't gain a mention on my grandmother's radar. So I assumed that yet again, I didn't match up. So it turned me into um, someone who strived all the time to do better um, and to achieve more. Uh, so which, you you desperately wanted affirmation from her? Yes, I did. And it never happened. Now, you were probably too young to understand that being mentally ill, you know, you were chasing after something that just wasn't going to happen. That's right. I had no understanding of how ill my grandmother was. And yeah, it all formed part of my early shaping that I didn't even think about or know about at the time. But a few years later, that all began to fall into place and I saw a pattern emerging. Okay, so talking about your early shaping, for the reasons you just mentioned, you had no confidence, no self-esteem, any other things that went into your early shaping at that time in your life? No, not really, just uh, the usual um, questions that everyone asks in their late teens, early 20s, uh, you know, who am I, what am I here for, what am I going to do with my life, I'm not good at anything, so, you know, I don't really know where to start. All of those questions I was asking at, uh, you know, around 17, 18. And did faith come into the equation? No, it didn't at that point. Um, we didn't have time for, for God or church or Bibles because we were all too busy trying to survive in this uh, powder keg that we lived in. There were mm. violent rages and anger and things being tossed around. And, um, yeah, I was just trying to survive, really. But um, I, I was asking all these questions and one day a friend gave me a leaflet about a Christian camp and she said, I don't want to go, but she said, you like horses and all things crazy, so why don't you go? <laughs> and I said, oh, all right, why not? So um, going to this camp simply because I wanted to ride horses meant that I actually met God. Um, I wasn't looking for it. I didn't know I had a need in that area of my life. But it was as if God was just there. He found me. That's the way I experienced mm. it. And uh, suddenly things started to make sense, and it was amazing. One thing that God did for me, as well as giving me direction in my life, he pressed a button or something that gave me a sense of humor. And so I became... Well, that's good. <laughs> <laughs> I hadn't had much to laugh at up to that point. And suddenly, yeah, I was uh, you know, a mad practical joker that drove everybody crazy. So you had joy in your life from that point on, yes. but yet this whole idea of mental illness and being around people with mental illness, that was something that you were not interested in. That's correct. One thing God did do for me, almost right from when I first um, started to follow him, he gave me a real compassion for hurting people. And I spent a lot of time with inner city youth clubs, uh, worked for a crisis center, um, I did a counselling course and I was involved in pastoral care at my church. Do you think that was because you could relate to them because you hurt in your childhood? It didn't hit me at the time. Um, looking back, perhaps that was part of it. Mm -hmm. But I certainly had no intention of ever doing anything else. I just thought this was, I was writing for a job. I was always a writer and reaching out to people. I thought that was, that was going to be my path. Um, something I do need to tell you is that in my early 20s, when my grandmother died, we all thought that life would settle down to a bit of normality. And um, for about two years, it 
fairly well did that. But then my dad, who was grandma's son, um, he started having mental health problems. And mm. so another generation began of having to visit psychiatric wards again and uh, dealing with the same issues. Now, the good news was that uh, my dad was not violent like his mum. He just withdrew and became very quiet. But there were a lot of issues associated with that. Another good thing was that the mental health wards were now attached to general hospitals. Uh, no bars, no uh, huge gates, no stone walls. Hmm. And the care was much better. The stays were a lot shorter and people actually did get better. The medications had been developed and were working. So Dad's experience was better, but we were still living with someone, you know, with all these issues that had to be dealt with. Mm -hmm. And uh, there was one day when I was visiting Dad and he asked me to go and talk to the man in the corner bed. He said that uh, he had no visitors because his family had rejected him and would I go and talk to him? And so I said, oh, okay, I can do that. And I had no idea then that that was God sowing a seed for what was coming up a few years later. Yeah, I, I thought you would say, no, I don't want to do that because of my past bad experiences with people with mental illness. Well, I think for, firstly, I was, um, it gave me a, a small window into my dad that I hadn't been aware of. I thought, oh, wow, here's my dad caring for somebody else. Hmm. Um, whereas normally it was me that was rushing out, helping everybody. And, um, yeah, for whatever reason, it uh, it was a God moment and uh, mm -hmm. it worked. <laughs> now, looking back, what diagnosis did your grandmother have and also your father? I'm fairly certain that my grandmother was a manic depressive. It was bipolar disorder. And with my dad, it was endogenous depression. And then quickly, let's find out what happened in your life. You got married, had children. Yes, I did. I continued to work as a writer um, had two daughters and was still heavily involved in my church with my husband and uh, the girls were involved as well. And I was, uh, yeah, like I said, I was doing a, a counselling course and um, just felt, it seemed to come out of nowhere. I felt God saying, I want you to go back and train to be a psychiatric chaplain. And I just didn't want to do that. Yeah, and what was your first response? God, you've got to be kidding. You can't ask me to do this. It's too hard. I can't do it. You can't expect me to do it. I've been in more psychiatric wards now than most people would go into in a lifetime. Um, I'll fall apart. My family will be at risk. Um, no, 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 no. Please send someone else. It, so it, it was just stirring up all those old issues. Yes, it was. It, it was my Jonah time. Um, if there'd been a boat I could have got on and left the country, I probably would have. But um, <laughs> there, there was no boat and there was just me. <laughs> and two things happened that really confirmed this calling uh, and made me realize that I wasn't just imagining it. A friend, uh, a neighbor actually, just lived three houses down, came up to my house very distressed and said that her mother had just tried to commit suicide and was mm. in the local hospital's psychiatric ward, and she didn't know how to deal with it. Now, she had no idea of my past or of this uh, current dilemma I was facing and the course I was thinking of starting, but I was able to comfort her. And, you know, I thought, well, okay, God, you can't be more specific. <laughs> this has got to be of you. <laughs> this is something I need to do. And then the week before I started the course, God gave me the verse in Isaiah I will give you the treasures of darkness, riches stored in secret places, so that you may know that I am the Lord. And that for me meant that there was going to be treasures, rewards in these dark places, in the dark minds of the people that I was going to meet. 
and that you know God was in it. And so with those two confirmations, off I went to start my training. You're listening to The Story. Today, Eric Scatterbo is chatting with Kay Hollings from the Gold Coast about how God changed her heart about working with mentally ill people. Next, we'll find out how this turned out to be one of the most positive things that has ever happened to her. That and more when we return. The Story. If this program has highlighted something you'd like prayer for, we'd love to pray for you. Call 1-800-PRAY-FOR-ME. That's 1-800-772-936. It's a free call. Or text 0401 132 888. Hi, I'm Jimmy Colfax and this is The Story. We're continuing with Eric Scatterbo chatting with Kay Hollings about how God uses difficult experiences in our lives to shape our souls. For Kay, the difficult experience was being called to work with mentally ill people despite being emotionally scarred growing up with a mentally ill grandmother. However, she says, God reshaped my heart and began to reveal some of the treasures found only in darkness. So, Kay, how did God, how did he reshape your heart? Well, once I accepted that this was what God did want me to do, um, I went off to do the training feeling very much at peace and, you know, ready just to throw myself into it. And for the first few weeks, that was fine and I was coping brilliantly. And then one day back at Callum Park or Roselle Hospital, which was um, a very well-known psychiatric institution, that was where our training began and that was where I had visited my grandmother as a child. So, Oh, wow. So you're going right back to where it all started. Yeah. So everything was fine. And um, I remembered certain areas of the hospital. It's a very big place. And then one day I came around a corner and there was an exercise yard. It was walled. And there was a woman in there with grey hair pacing up and down as the mentally ill do. And she was wailing and moaning. And it just stopped me in my tracks. And it was a real flashback. And it just made Mm. me, what hit me was that the child visiting grandma there had been terrified but here I was standing there as an adult, choosing to be there, and God just made me feel, oh, I just felt incredibly sad, and it was the start of my compassion for people with a mental illness. Now, that had to happen, obviously, if I was going to go into that area and be effective. Uh, so what I did, I told the um, leader of the group that you know I'd had this experience, and so he organised for me to go on my own into one of the old deserted buildings that had been nailed up um, that was typical of the wards that my grandmother would have been in. And he said, look, you just go in there. He gave me this great big key and said, uh, take as long as you want and, um, you know, just spend some time there. And, and that, how was that going to help? Well, it was amazing. I, I was in this ward that um, had rusty baths all down the middle. There was no privacy back in those wards at that time. Mm. People just had beds around the edge and the baths were in the middle and there were no curtains. Uh, The windows were smashed out and pigeons were flying in and out. And I just sat there and for the first time saw mental illness through the eyes of my grandmother. In the past, I'd been on the outside looking in, but now for the first time I was on the inside looking out. 
yeah, it just broke something in me and I was able to forgive my grandmother. I found her and forgave her and from that point on I was able to move forward with my training and in learning how to try and make a difference, you know, amongst people with those huge problems. Now, God basically drew you into something that you didn't want to have anything to do with. That was your worst fear. Yes. And yet here he was drawing you into that. But that's kind of a trend in your life. Is that right? <laughs> um, I don't know if it's a trend, but um, that well, was... Well, God shaping you well, through yes. difficult experiences? Yes, that's true. Um, one thing that, that did happen after I met God was that um, I became, from being very insecure, I became a person that loved to push boundaries and to, you know, step outside my comfort zone. Well, this was mm. way outside my comfort zone. Yeah. Um, and in the process of, uh, in the pottery process, um, I've called this my first firing, my first time in the kiln to have all the, mm. the rough edges burnt off, uh, which is pretty much what it was. Um I also, during this time, found myself sitting on my grandmother's grave. That was, she had died 26 years before. It was a long time in coming, but I needed to reconnect with her and forgive her and, and move past it. And then we moved into the second part of the training, which was in another big psychiatric institution that no longer um, is functioning called Gladesville. And in Gladesville, um, it was a hospital for the criminally insane. I don't think you're allowed to say that today. That's politically incorrect. That's what it was called back then. So I think I'm safe. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and there were also a lot of people there who were developmentally disabled who had been there from childhood. They'd been there for their whole life. So it was a place for those sort of people as well. Um, so there's one story I'd like to share. Um, as, yes, please. As we got into this second part of the course, the numbers dropped from 20 to 6 and on the first day, we all looked at each other and said, you know, how can we make a difference here? It just seemed too hard. There were the big walls that I mentioned. There were moats so people couldn't escape. We were given keys that literally were, you know, about six inches long, these big old-fashioned keys to unlock these big locks. It was like being in a Charles Dickens novel. Um, well, on the very first day, I met a man who I'll call Perry, he couldn't speak. He just used to grunt and make noises. Uh, he would have been probably in his 40s or 50s, I guess. A bit hard to tell. He had been there his whole life. Um, he just used to rush around. He somehow knew where he was. He used to go down to the shopping centre and come back and always find his way back to his room at night. And he used to. He learned that if he went to the chaplain's office, he could always get a free cup of tea. He loved his cup <laughs> of tea. And you'd often see him leaving the kitchen with a, a banana and a slice of meat hanging out of his pocket. He uh, knew where the food was, knew where to get a cuppa, but couldn't really speak. And he scared me at first, but um, I just prayed and said, well, okay, Lord, there's a lot of people here like Perry. Um, how do I get through to him? What, what can I say? What can I do that's going to make a difference? And one day we were in a prayer meeting and uh, Perry came bursting through the door he never knocked, he just arrived. And uh, he saw that we were praying and he suddenly went quiet and he stood in the middle of the room with his hands in front of him and bowed his head. And we were blown away. When we finished praying, he just quietly left. He forgot about the cup of tea. And so we weren't quite sure what that meant, but it, it had an impact on us. And then the next Sunday, it was my turn to take the church service in the chapel at the hospital and I had recorded music because nobody could really sing very much. And somehow Perry 
arrived. He knew it was Sunday. He knew the time to be there. No one could tell me how he could figure that out, but he knew. And the last song that I played was Jesus Loves Me. And it it brings tears to my eyes even talking about it now, and it was a long time ago. Uh, Perry just stood up, waved his arms around, was grunting and making a whole lot of noises, but he came right down the front. He stood almost with his nose touching mine, and he was just leaping and um, in his own way he was singing that song. Mm. And it was something that uh, what it taught me was that uh, no one is too hard for God. God doesn't put anyone in the too hard basket. And somewhere mm. in his confused mind and life he he had met God somehow some way. Mm -hmm. And that just impacted me to realize that um, it wasn't about me, you know, just being there and loving these people and just having an attitude of care towards them was enough. God would do the rest. And so that has held me in good stead over all these years of dealing with difficult situations. Wow. I mean, it's amazing that you made that connection. Well, I should say God made that connection. Well, that was... um, an absolute proof of that verse, you know, I will give you treasures out of the darkness. That's exactly what that was. And uh, it was something that, yeah, I was really able to hang on to. Yeah. Now I'm listening to this and I'm thinking even under the best of conditions, it would be difficult to be around mentally ill people. I mean, we're talking severely mentally ill people, mm-hmm. but with your past, it would be even more so. But do you think somehow, ironically, you are uniquely qualified? I'm no expert, that's for sure. (laughs) Um, But I mean, because of what you went through, you weren't as shocked as maybe other people would have been? I think that was true because there were a couple of people who dropped out because they couldn't cope with the sort of behavior that they were witnessing. But Mm -hmm. uh, it just rolled off me because I'd seen it all before. (laughs) Yeah, 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 it's old hat for you. Yeah. So in a way, yeah, that early shaping that I didn't see as shaping back when it was happening, um, God doesn't waste anything in our lives. I've come to realize that. And, uh, you know, he can bring good out of the bad. And I suppose, well, I just said, and I'm serious, you know, I'm no expert in this area, but having lived through two generations of people with those sort of issues, um, I guess it gave me some insights that maybe, you know, other people didn't have, or it just helped me to um, relate to the people that I was now meeting. Well, unfortunately, we're quickly running out of time, but let's kind of look at the overall big picture. What are some of the main themes that we can learn from your life? Well, I think we all have a soul for sure. And if we don't work at shaping that into something that's going to be useful, um, I think we'll always remain like an unbalanced pot with an uneven base that can be knocked over at the first wind that comes along. Um, Mm. uh, We all do have a soul, a spirit that needs to be we need to address that and uh, give it some nutrients. And in my situation, I just found that by following God's direction, he used all of my past and turned it into something that could help other people. Um, after my years in the hospital, I then went on to become a funeral director, dealing with a different mm-hmm. type of grief. Again, dealing with people who were you know, at a very vulnerable point in their lives. And still today, I'm a funeral celebrant taking services for people who don't have any faith or anything to turn to when they go through these tough times. So, yeah, God has enabled me to do all of that and um, to love it and to just, you know, meet some beautiful people along the way and to do what I can to help them. Well, thank you for sharing your story with us today. Thank you so much for having me. That was Eric Scatterbo chatting with Kay Hollings. 
author of the book Shaped, Is Your Life Pear-Shaped or Purpose-Shaped? And in the book, she shares her life story and also has some advice for how your soul can be shaped by God's hands as well. For more information, her website is khollings.com. That's khollings.com. Well, thanks for joining us for today's Uplifting Story. I'm Jimmy Colfax, encouraging you to share your story with someone you know. Next time on The Story. I've spoken in the chapel time and said, We've left a family behind in Australia to come here, but now we're leaving a family behind in Korea to go back to Australia because we live with them, we eat with them, and we teach them, and they do become like our family. Aileen and Robin Byers have been a global couple right from the beginning when they met at the Grand Canyon and have been travelling the world ever since. Their travels have included helping train missionaries in South Korea and teaching English in Lebanon. We'll hear their globe-trotting adventures next time. The story. story. Just another way vision is connecting faith to life. Before you go, thanks for listening. There's lots more great audio on demand, or you can listen to us live at visionradio.org.au. And remember, vision is listener-supported. Your donation, large or small, will help us continue connecting faith to life for hundreds of thousands of people across Australia and around the world. Learn more or donate today at visionradio.org.au.